So we are continuing on here in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And if you have been tracking all, along with us, I hope that you would have seen um, some commonalities, a theme that is working itself out here in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And we've seen a series of miracle stories, haven't we? Where Jesus' authority is put on display for us. So here this morning, as we began in verse 27 of chapter 9, we come to the story of this healing of the two blind men. This is really the ninth miracle story in Matthew thus far. Now, if you'll think about these, these past two chapters and these past few weeks as we've been looking at these miracle stories, I, I wonder if you've noticed a bit of a crescendoing, if you will, right? A, build, a, a bit of building of these stories. He's healing s sickness, and then he's calming the, the nature and, and the waves and the winds and waves of the storm. He is, you know, casting out demons, and last week, it, there was somewhat of a build to him ultimately doing what? Raising that young girl from the dead. A sort of building, a growing, an expanding of, of this idea of Jesus' authority as we've been going through 8 and 9. And now we come here to this ninth, ninth miracle story of these healing of these two blind men, and, and I wonder what's going on here. It seems like we hit a bit of a crescendo last week. He raises this child from the dead, and now he's healing blind men. What's going on in the narrative? What's going on in the story? Are we, are we going backwards now? Are we you know, heading back in some sort of other direction? What does this story of the healing of these blind men teach us? Or to put it this way, we've been seeing a picture of Jesus emerge, right? You can think of it as a portrait of Jesus that's being painted for us by Matthew. So I, I could put it this way. What color do these two blind men add to this picture of Jesus, that portrait of Jesus that we've been getting in Matthew 8 and 9, which is already this what? Colorful picture of Christ. What's the purpose here of, of this story? Well, certainly, I think, you know, if Jesus is building up his miracle-working resume, right, this is, you know, another, another bullet point to add, surely. Right? It shows, again, Jesus' authority over the effects of the curse of sin in this world. Everything from what? Blindness to death. But I think it's important for us to see that before these men ever receive their sight, these two men add to our understanding and perception of faith. If you look in the passage, this first miracle that we see here focuses on faith. In, faith. in verse 28, what is the question? Do you believe? And in verse 29, we, we see what? According to your faith. Think back with me through these stories in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. The 
the confident yet humble faith of the leper and the centurion. Think back with me. That immediate, obedient faith of, of Matthew. Think back. That desperate, childlike faith of Jairus and, and the woman with the issue of blood. To all of that, these two blind men add some clarity to our understanding, to our defining of faith. And this morning, I would want to consider three questions that they might bring clarity to us for. Here are those, these three questions. One, who are we supposed to have faith in? Two, what are we supposed to ask for? And three, how are we to come to Christ? In what manner? These three questions for us to consider. So first, who are we supposed to have faith in? And their answer to the question, these two blind men answer to this question is what? Is that that faith is in who? It is in Jesus to read quickly again the, the passage from 27 to 30. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men having followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. There's some details here that I think are important for us. First, what we've already said, that faith is at the center of this conversation. In faith, they are calling out to Jesus. Why? Because they want to be healed. Then Jesus asked them if they believe that he is able to do this. And notice what he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask, do you believe that I can ask my Father in heaven for the power to heal? No. What does he say? Do you believe that I can heal? That I can heal? And they say, yes, Lord. They say, yes. It is an affirmative. It is a confident affirmative. Yes, we believe in you and your power to do this. Jesus is the object of their faith. Jesus, as the son of David, is the object of their faith. Son of David. These men here in the narrative, in the story, are the first to use this important term for Jesus. It is a messianic term. It, it connects to his role, his title, his identity as the Messiah. They are the first to see in the narrative Jesus' royalty as king. 
He is a king with a kingdom. They're the first to see his royalty and, and the fulfillment that's in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of that covenant to David so long ago. But this is not the first time we've seen this in the Gospel of Matthew. Think back with me all the way to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. How does Matthew begin the gospel? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And now we're in chapter 9, and it's like, finally, someone has caught up with Matthew's line of thinking. This Jesus, the son of David, is who? The promised king. He is the king. He is our king. That is the one that they have faith in. There's lots of notions about faith nowadays in the culture that we live in, in the cur current cultural context. Many folks think about faith, if you just look into the wider culture and think of it as some sort of nebulous thing that's just kind of out in the air, out in the ether, you know, faith. I have faith. But in order to understand faith and think about it logically and coherently, faith is in something or someone. It must be in something or someone. Now, some would say, well, you know, I have faith in that notion that all faiths are the same, right? Some might go down this philosophical line of thinking, and I'd say, well, you know, that, that's not really thinking historically or logically, but at least you're saying you're having faith in something. But this idea of faith just out there, disconnected, essentially a faith in faith, if you will. It's, it's, it's really a nonsensical idea because whether we admit it or not, each of us, all of us, has faith in something. And as Christians, as believers, we have faith in Jesus like, this, like these blind men, we look to him, what? As alone, as he is the object of our saving faith. He alone is the son of David. He alone is the Lord. So the first question these men answer is, who are we supposed to have faith in? The answer is Jesus, the Lord, the son of David, the king. Okay, what's next? The next question is, for what? We're supposed to have faith in him for what? What are we to ask? And what do these blind men teach us? What are we to ask? What is the answer? Mercy. Mercy. We see in verse 27 that they followed him crying aloud. And what are they crying aloud? 
have mercy on us. And the, the notion I get from the text is that they are following. They're not just crying this one time. They're following along with Jesus. They're petitioning Jesus, and they're crying aloud, have mercy on us. They wanted Jesus to have a compassion upon them, a compassion upon their condition. You think about blindness and the uh, amazing strides that, that they're even that there has been even been made in treating blindness uh, even in this day. But blindness then and even today, those that are, are not reversible in any other sense, blindness at that time would obviously lead to what? Some hardships, some struggles, some challenges, and also usually some measure of, of poverty. The blind in Jesus' time were more often than not beggars. But more than that, blindness also often had this sort of stigma attached to it, a religious sort of stigma. If you look back into the Old Testament, there is counsel for God's people to be considerate and compassionate toward the, those who are blind. You can see that in Leviticus. There is guidance there. But almost every example of someone becoming blind, if you look in the Old Testament, is in the context of what? They're being what? Judged. Punished for some kind of sin. There's lots of examples. You think of, in Genesis, you think of the, the Sodomites coming and knocking on Lot's door. And they were what? Struck with blindness. You think of the Syrians who were coming around to attack God's people. And then ultimately they were struck with what? Blindness. Think of Samson, how his eyes, because of sin, ultimately were gouged out. He died a blind man. You come into the New Testament, we, we do see that Jesus heals a blind man in John chapter 9 that shows us that blindness, is, it's not always related to sin. But you've got other texts. You look in Acts. You look at Paul's sort of temporary blindness. And it reminds us that at times that there, there, that there may be some kind of connection. We, at, at minimum, we know that sin always what has consequences. There are consequences to sin. We cannot not acknowledge that. And sometimes those consequences will manifest themselves in some kind of physical way. And I say all this to say that as, I, as we hear these men cry out for mercy, that there might be more in this plea for mercy than just a cure for blindness. I don't know, but there might be more. They might be confessing sin, repenting of sin or of some series of sins that ultimately resulted in this blindness. So Jesus, have mercy on us. 
Have mercy on our bodies. Have mercy on our souls. Now, that, that there may or may not be credence to that. But I think regardless, Matthew would like us, as we read, to think about it in a spiritual sense. Because if you think back to the paralytic that was brought to Jesus at the beginning of chapter 9, what was his biggest need? His biggest need and our biggest need, blind or not blind, is God's what? Merciful forgiveness of sins. Jesus, hear me this morning. Jesus didn't die to make nice people a little more nice. Jesus didn't die just to show us an example of sacrifice for others. Jesus died to demonstrate God's hatred towards sin and his mercy towards sinners. blinded sinners, spiritually blinded sinners like you, like me, like them, like these two blind men. So who are we supposed to have faith in? Jesus. And what are we having faith in him for? Mercy. And finally, how are we to come to Come in faith to Jesus for mercy. In what manner? How are we to come in faith to Jesus for mercy? The question, you could put it, what should our posture be? What should our posture be as we come? Well, I think we should come. We should come with a, a hunger that is rooted in humility. A hunger rooted in humility. Now again, put, a, put on your cinematic glasses with me. And Jesus is passing by. These blind men are following him, crying out loudly, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Following, following and the text gives this notion that, that Jesus has not, does not immediately acknowledge them, that, that there's this idea that they are following along, crying out this plea, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus is going on along towards this house, most likely Peter's house. We don't know for sure. What, what's Jesus doing here? We don't have this immediate response to them. Is he testing their faith? Is, is he concerned about what they said? Because they called him, what, son of David? They're the first to do that? 
And while it's true, is he concerned that the crowd might misinterpret this and say, oh, this is a Messiah, but he's a political Messiah and sort of misunderstand things? Whatever the reason, they are following and crying out, and there is not this immediate response. And Jesus heads into the house, and what do we know? What do these blind men do? Where do they go? Right in after him. They go right in after him. They seem hungry, don't they? They seem hungry for this healing. Like the fa- like Jairus, the father of that young girl that was dead and raised. Like, like the bleeding woman. Like those four guys that tore off the roof of the house in order to save their friend. These two blind men are absolutely determined to get into the presence of Jesus. That is a humility or a hungering that is rooted in humility. That is a gospel faith, a faith that is centered on the truth of the gospel. Now, having finally gotten Jesus' attention, like like the others before him, what do we see? They show a faith in Jesus before he performs any miracle. And Jesus sort of makes sure of it. Point blank, he asks them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Heal them of their blindness. Have mercy on them. And they say yes. They say amen. They say let it be so. True, truly, we believe. And how does Jesus, what is Jesus' response to this, this hungering humility? I mean, Jesus eats this up. And then Jesus, in his own humility, what does he do? He touches them. Now, we, we spent some time talking about Jesus' touch and the touch of the, the bleeding woman last week. And here again, we see Jesus, in his humility, what does he do? He touches their eyes. Their eyes that were supposedly unclean, their eyes potentially diseased, their eyes infected by sin, their eyes burdened and laden with the curse. Jesus touches their eyes. And according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. I, I imagine what it might be like for someone who, as, who has actually recovered their sight to read this passage. I think it might be difficult for us here who have always had our sight to comprehend what that moment might have been like to see for the first time. But in truth, we see that their eyes were opened. And then we get verse 31, 30 and 31. And it gets a little weird. 
Their eyes were open, but there is some irony here in this passage, which is only going to increase when we get to the next um, miracle story shortly. There is an irony here, and that is that once these blind men see, the first thing they do is actually disobey Jesus. Did you notice that? That's interesting. (laughs) If you think about what Paul says in Romans about faith and obedience, he talks about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Now, these men seem to show a disobedience of faith, right? It's hard, it's hard to kind of make sense of it. Their eyes are open, and Jesus sternly warned them. See that no one knows about it. But they went away and what? They spread his fame all throughout the district. Now, there is this notion uh, that Jesus, we see of Jesus in the Gospels of him sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's called like the messianic secret that, you know, you will see him often say after uh, a healing or after doing something to say, hey, you know, let's not, don't, don't tell anybody. To be kind of quiet about a miracle. And, so, and there was a time where he didn't do that, right? You look in John chapter 4. So wh- what's going on here? Why might Jesus be, be doing this or saying this? And I think we hinted at it a little bit earlier. Jesus is not looking for the popularity that comes with what? The power to heal. And more, I think more importantly, he doesn't want the crowds to misunderstand the kind of king that he is. Right? He is the son of David, but unlike David, he hasn't come as some sort of military political warrior, but he has come as what? A sacrificial lamb. He is the son of David, but he is the suffering servant. I feel like we can be sympathetic to what happens in verse 31 because it seems sort of natural enough, doesn't it? Although it does look wrong because Jesus gave them a direct command. But I mean, they were happy, I'm sure. They were grateful. I think we all might might do the same thing. I don't know. So it's a wonder why, you know, what what is the purpose here of verse 31? Why, Why is it there? What is it trying to tell us? I think it's interesting. When they are blind, they see. They see who are theirs to have faith in. What they are supposed to ask for. How they are supposed to approach Jesus. But once they see, it's almost like faith got distorted. When faith should always manifest itself with what? Obedience. Faith should always manifest in obedience to Jesus' commands. No matter how countercultural they are, no matter how counterintuitive they may be. 
So what is the point of verse 31? I don't know that I know for sure, but maybe it is better to be blind and obedient than to see and disobey. Maybe it's better to be blind and obedient than to see and disobey. Now, I'm not sure if that's why verse 31 is there, but what I am more sure of is that there is another miracle that we have in the passage, and I am more sure of the purpose of this, of this second miracle. If you look in verses 32 to 34, so following this, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. We've been going through Matthew 8 and 9, and I hope you've seen sort of how these stories work. All of them highlight what? Jesus' power and authority. We are supposed to come out of each of these miracle stories, and here's what I think we should, we should be thinking every time. Only God could do that. Every story, we come out of it, and we should be thinking and saying, only God could do that. So that's one layer of all these stories. And then there's another layer in these stories that speak to us about what? The nature of faith. The nature of authentic faith. So you have Jesus' power and authority on display. Only God could do that. And then you have this thread running through about the authenticity of faith. The nature of authentic faith. Right? This is how we're supposed to respond to Jesus. But in this last miracle story here, this exorcism of this you know, deaf mute, most likely, it is a little different than the others. That thread about faith, that's not present in this account. You don't see that. More than that, if you look at the other, those other miracle stories, there, there is this dialogue between Jesus and whoever he is healing. And that, that dialogue is at the center uh, of the story. Yet when Jesus heals this, this deaf mute, right, there's no recorded dialogue here. Now, you might be saying, um, preacher guy, the guy was deaf and mute. <laughs> you know, he can't hear, he can't talk. That's why there's no dialogue. True, I'll give you that, right? But I think there is more. I think there is more to it here. That if we have seen all these stories in this pattern with Jesus' power and authority and then this thread of authentic faith, that when we now have this story and there is no conversation between Jesus and the person healed, that Matthew is making a point here. There's some theological point that he wants us to see, that he wants us to understand. 
So what is that? What is the purpose of this miracle? I would say it is the Pharisees' blindness. The Pharisees' blindness. That's what this miracle shows. Here, the story, the focus is not on the faith of the mute or the miracle itself. Rather, what's the focus here? The reactions to the miracles. The reactions. What does the crowd do? They marvel. They say, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But what do the Pharisees do? It should jump out in the text. It's really shocking. What do the Pharisees do? They don't marvel, that's for sure. They don't believe, that's for sure. Instead, having seen with their own eyes Jesus heal the leper, having seen with their own eyes Jesus heal the lame and the blind and this mute man, having seen with their own eyes a demon cast out of this man, what do they do? They accuse Jesus of working in concert and for the devil. These men knew the scriptures. Instead of remembering the Holy Scriptures and what it says in Isaiah that predicts about the healing of what? The blind and the deaf and the mute as these messianic sort of signs and clues. The Pharisees do none of that. They're blind to God's word and therefore blind to God's Son. And I hope we can see that this morning. As we come to close in a moment, think back with me again to these other miracle stories. Think back to the the centurion. What does the centurion tell us about faith? That Gentiles can what? See Jesus... For who he is. Think back with me to the tax collector, Matthew. What does his story of conversion and calling tell us? That what? Sinners can also what? See him. And then, how ironic... Even what? Blind men can what? See Jesus as the Lord and as the Christ. But we come to the end, and these Pharisees are completely blind. The blind are seeing, the mute speak, but the Pharisees speak out of blindness. And really, this whole passage is about blind men. Yes, the two blind men that Jesus heals, but also the Pharisees. 
verses 27 to 31 describe two blind men who, although they cannot see, actually do what? See. They see who Jesus is. And then verse 32 to 34 describes another group of men, the Pharisees. They are too blind, but not physically, but what? Spiritually. Although they can see and they have seen, they cannot and will not see Jesus for who he is. They're too blind to see Jesus. And this is why if you go forward to Matthew chapter 23, what does Jesus say of the Pharisees? Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, blind fools. Woe to you, blind men. Woe to you, blind Pharisees. So I think the pertinent question for us today is, what do you see? What do you see today? Do you see anything? Are you blinded to anything? Or do you see Jesus as the Son of David, as the Lord, as the Christ, as the King, as your King? Do you see Him? Do you see Him as full of mercy? Do you see Him as being willing to be merciful to you? To all who come to Him with hungering humility. And if we come back to our call to worship this morning in Psalm 146, I think we can say and we can agree with the psalmist here that says, What? The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord loves the righteous. What we see is so important. The lens through which we look at life is so important. If we put our trust in anything else other than Jesus, then, the, then that will be the lens through which we look at life. And ultimately, it will be a distorted picture. But we must see all of reality through the lens that is Jesus Christ, Son of David, King Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together this morning.